Hi, everyone. Eric here. Before we get to our discussion with Tim Jones from the Jubilee Debt Campaign, very quickly, I want to make sure that you know about our daily China-Africa email newsletter. Now, more than ever, we all need accurate, high-quality information about what's going on with COVID-19 and how it's impacting Africa and Chinese engagement on the continent. I spend about seven to eight hours a day going through hundreds of news sources, social media posts, online videos, and academic papers in French, Chinese, and English to bring you a concise digest of everything that's going on. Things are changing so fast now that it's almost impossible to keep up on your own. This newsletter is designed to help you do just that. You can try it out for free for two weeks just to see if you like it. And we also offer half-price subscriptions for both students and faculty. Find out more at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we are now several weeks into the COVID crisis in Africa. It took a little bit longer for COVID-19 to arrive on the continent, but it is there now. Right now, the issue in Africa is twofold. One, there is a burgeoning health crisis that a lot of people are talking about, but it's nowhere near as large as the economic crisis that is unfolding. And last week, a very important milestone happened, and the issue of debt was addressed. And Prime Minister Abayi uh, Ahmed from Ethiopia was the first to put it on the agenda. And he, let me just read for you a, a note. And it really, he wanted to make sure everybody was abundantly clear about the, the dire situation that Africa faced right now. He says, COVID-19 poses an existential threat to the economies of African countries. Our economies, fragile and vulnerable, even in the best of times, will face serious shocks following the crisis. He then went on to propose three remedies for the G20 to consider at their extraordinary virtual summit that they had last week uh, that was organized by Saudi Arabia. And one of the proposals is he wants debt resolution and restructuring, and he wants a complete wipe up, a, a wipeout of the debt. Ethiopia proposes all interest payments to government loans should be written off, in addition, Ethiopia proposes part of the debt of low-income countries should be written off, and we suggest the remaining of the debt be converted into long-term low-interest loans with 10 years grace period before payment. All debt repayments will be limited to 10% of the value of exports. So there was the call. Your president, Kobus, Cyril Ramaphosa, brought the issue up at the, the G20 summit. We have not heard anything definitive coming out of the summit as to whether or not uh, the wealthy countries, the, the G19 that are, don't include South Africa, would be willing to consider it or what they're going to do on the debt. But now debt is definitely on the African agenda as it relates to COVID-19, Kobus. 
Yes, and um, you know it raises a bunch of very complicated issues because the debt landscape in Africa has really shifted um, over the last two decades. Um, in the past, debt used to be concentrated, you know, among some of Africa's traditional development partners um, like the World Bank, um, International Monetary Fund, and so on. Um, now it's a, it's a different landscape with with a lot more a lot more held by private um, you know kind of holders. Um, China plays a very big role. So the question of how these kind of controls will be implemented, um, how it will all work, becomes a, a really big issue. Um, and who these appeals should be addressed to also becomes a really important issue. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Today is going to be a little bit of a debt for dummies show. And so this the idea here is that it is much more complicated than it's being presented in some of the media narratives and even some of the political narratives. I mean, the idea that that Prime Minister Abayi could simply go to the G20 and the G20 then agrees to do something, and the IMF and the World Bank, who have also issued statements saying they support Abayi's call for wiping out of the debt, a wand is waved and basta, pasta, the debt is gone. It is not that simple anymore. And so we're going to get some answers today from Tim Jones, who's a senior policy and campaigns officer at the Jubilee Debt Campaign, a nonprofit group based in London. Uh, just for those of you who aren't familiar with the Jubilee Debt Campaign, uh, obviously they focus on debt and they provide a lot of amazing information. One of the most important pieces of data that if you follow this issue closely is their October 2018 report, Africa's Growing Debt Crisis, Who Is the Debt Owed To? And we're going to talk about that today. But first, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. It's good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. So I think to start our discussion, and I, I said this is going to be a debt for dummies show, before we get into the particulars of African debt, I wanted to see if you might be able to help us define some terms, because those of us who are not in the economic space or uh, in the finance space don't necessarily understand all these things. So there are different kinds of debt that are in Africa. There's bilateral debt, there's external debt, there's multilateral debt, there are private lenders, and then there's Paris Club. Can we just go through very briefly and define some of those different kinds of debt so that as we get further into our conversation, it'll make a little bit more sense? Yeah, let's try. I mean, firstly, uh, distinction, best distinction to start with is probably external v. domestic debt. So external debt is debt to anyone owed, out, owed to anyone outside the country. So if you're in Zambia, it is debt that is owed by the government to anybody else in the world who isn't in Zambia, whereas domestic debt is owed to somebody who is resident in Zambia. Then within the external debt, it tends to be broken down into three categories. So bilateral is debt that is owed to another government. So that could be China, it could be the United States, it could be France. Then there is multilateral debt, is debt owed to an institution that is owned by a lot of governments together. And that includes the IMF and World Bank. And then finally, there is private debt. So debt owed to anyone else, a company, a bank, an individual, a hedge fund, somewhere else in the world. And where do euro bond holders fit into that, the bond holders? 
Yeah, so euro bonds would mainly be within the private external debt. So um, that's debt that's owed to a, a private um, institution somewhere outside of the country. If a euro bond is bought by, say, a Zambian euro bond is bought by a Zambian bank, then that actually becomes a domestic debt. So it's not a feature of the debt itself, it is who the debt is owed to. And we hear a lot about euro bonds. Can you just, again, in the cliff notes, the debt for dummies framing, what is a euro bond? Firstly, I would just scrap the word euro from the front of it. That is the most confusing thing that um, in this discussion. If you focus on the word bond, a bond is a kind of contract where a lender lends the money and the debtor agrees to repay that, um, usually at one particular date in the future. So a common bond contract would be for 10 years. So the borrower gets, say, a billion dollars, and the debtor agrees to repay that in 10 years. And in the meantime, they pay whatever the agreed interest is every year. The key thing is that because the bond is quite a standard contract, it's very easy to trade it. So once that exists, the bonds are then sold on financial markets every day between different kinds of speculators. And so the whoever lent the money originally does not tend to be the person who actually the debt is um, owed to and paid to in the end. And these bonds are traded on financial markets all the time. Okay, our last term is the Paris Club. What is the Paris Club? And why is it important here? Yeah, the Paris Club is a group of um, mainly Western government creditors. And so traditionally, it was um, where they came together to negotiate if the um, debtor had a debt repayment problem. So the debtor would be made to go by themselves to the Paris Club and so you say uh, stick with the example of Zambia you go into a room and you as the Zambian government have to negotiate against all these creditors the United States Japan France Germany the UK who are all there collectively working together and so they um, were um, very important in the debt crisis in the 1980s and 1990s in terms of the debt owed to them, there's still a significant amount of debt owed to those countries, but it is not as big as it used to be. Um, but those governments are still also very important in their role within the IMF and World Bank, and we'll come on to that. Okay, so got that out of the way. Now it's time to start asking some questions relevant to the, the, the what's been going on. Going back to your 2018 report, you guys have a beautiful pie chart. Uh, and it breaks down where African debt, and it's the external debt owed by African governments by creditor. And 32% is bilateral, and 32% is private. So we're looking at 64% is either bilateral or private, and a small percentage of that, about the other third, is largely going to be World Bank and other multilaterals. That is the reason why I made the, the point on Twitter that said, I think Abai is misled in going to the G20 rather than going to China and to the private capital markets because the G20 simply doesn't have the authority anymore. It, this is my assumption, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bowing down to you, Jubilee Debt Campaign, to correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong here. 
they don't have the ability to wipe out the debt even if they wanted to, simply because China will do what China wants to do and the city in London and Wall Street will do what they want to do. So even if the G20 wanted to accede to Abayi and Ramaphosa's requests, can they? They would have a lot of influence if they did. But obviously, you're right. The G20 is not um, any one thing. It's just a grouping of 20 economically powerful countries. I think the, the, yeah, the key starting point is what you um, began with. The debt is owed to a lot of different people. And so there is no one person somewhere in the world who can say, I will cancel the debt. But there are still um, a few governments that have an influence over a lot of that debt. So if you think of the debt owed to um, other governments, the bilateral debt, and the debt owed to multilateral institutions, those multilateral institutions are run by um, the um, the Western governments and a few other countries like China. They have the major shareholdings. So between those governments... China, the US, Western governments, they control maybe two thirds of the debt. And so they can make decisions on that. And one place those governments meet together is the G20. Uh, you're, we should, um, we'll probably come into this in more detail to talk about how you deal with the debt owed to private companies. I think our perspective would be these, most of that debt, um, certainly, say, euro bonds, is bought up by some very specific kind of hedge funds that are owned by very rich people, investing very rich people's money. They are not going to um, turn around and say, yes, we offer to um, cancel the debt. So in some ways, I would say it makes no point going to talk to them because um, they are not going to listen. But they um, also do not actually have that much power. The debt of governments can just stop paying the debts. And there are lots of ways in which the IMF, the World Bank, Western governments, China could support countries in stopping paying those debts to the private sector. So when, when you um, heard these calls for coming from African leaders, what, what was your initial response? Um, I think we think it is a very welcome sign that they are wanting to um, challenge debt payments at this time. If we look just at what's happening right now, it is an unprecedented global economic shock that is um, having a massive impact on economies across Africa, regardless, even if... Um, coronavirus does not spread widely on the continent. The, um, in, on financial markets, these um, speculators affect the um, pulling out of um, debt, which means it's going to be very difficult for any governments to borrow from the private sector in the future. Lots of commodity prices have crashed. Tourism obviously has come to an um, almost complete halt. So that has a massive impact on countries. And so given that and given the need for countries to invest in their um, health systems and their social protection response to the crisis, it makes no sense to keep paying debts when you need that money in your country. So those calls from ministers have helped get the um, debt issue onto the agenda as one of the things that needs to be responded to. The 
question is what now actually can happen and also a challenge to some of those ministers that actually they have some of the power over this situation that it is not all on the side of the um, creditors powerful as they are there and certainly with some debts it is much easier for a debtor government just to actually stop paying and suspend payments themselves so ed cropley who is the reuters breaking views columnist he uh, he wrote. Uh, he focuses on African finance quite a bit. He wrote basically what you just said, which is that if it's a choice for a country like Ghana or Zambia to buy masks for their their healthcare workers or to pay back creditors, uh, that's a pretty simple choice. And he was saying that one way or another, this is going to resolve itself because they're just going to run out of money and they're going to focus on their immediate needs to, to in, in in the face of this crisis. Uh, the question is: is if they start defaulting on this debt, uh, the penalties can be rather severe. And Africa is in need of capital. So let's put COVID-19 aside. There's a trillion dollar or at least a hundred billion dollar a year uh, infrastructure deficit. There's power problems. There are all sorts of educational needs. There's lots of neat reasons that they need to be able to borrow money to finance their development. Should they default on this debt, will that handicap them or hinder them in the long term from being able to borrow more money? In the short term, it probably would, um, but also it depends on the lenders and what the lenders' response is. So if we look at the loans from the private sector, yes, if you default on um, a euro bond, you're not likely to be able to borrow any more at the moment. But that's already the case. There is no sign that there are um, the private financial markets will be willing to lend to most African governments at the moment. So that almost isn't the problem. It, it doesn't matter. You're not going to be able to access that money because you already can't in this crisis. There's actually, in some ways, unfortunately, evidence that um, the private lenders soon forget. So once the situation has been resolved, they almost start being willing to lend too willingly. And I mean, it um, gets onto a much deeper discussion about the usefulness of that lending and how well it is invested. So clearly, if the loans are given to be invested in useful things that generate a return and um, help um, the um, country develop, then that um, lending and borrowing can be useful. But actually, for the last 10 years, when there has been a very significant increase in lending, there's not much evidence of it being that well used. And so in that context, the question, how much does it matter if um, you're losing access to that um, finance? And what will the effect be if there if there actually is a, a kind of a flurry of of defaults across the continent? Like how 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 worried are you about that as a prospect? Um, I think I mean as um, a jubilee debt campaign, certainly we're not um, worried about defaulting on the private sector loans. Um, there are it's interesting to think through the other consequences of that. Um, so another possible consequence is being sued in courts in London and New York because most of these contracts are written under London and New York law. Um, now, that's actually a process that takes several years. It costs the um, owners of the debt, the speculators, a lot of money in legal fees. And um, there's, most of those lenders are actually often reluctant to go down that route. So in the 
immediacy of the current crisis, we'd suggest that is a problem for the future. It's a problem that should be addressed by um, laws in London and New York that help protect um, the um, borrower from being able to suspend debt payments for the moment. But the, um, I mean, there's, um, I guess, in thinking through a default, another issue is with the private debt debt, whether we're just talking about the debt to the external debt people owed outside the country. There can be knock-on impact um, countries default on the debt owed domestically because that can put local banks into trouble. And so I think everything I've been saying is focusing really on the um, external private sector debts um, rather than the domestic debt. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Let's talk about the politics of debt, because debt is one of those issues that is at once an economic issue, but also very much a political issue. And I'm wondering about whether or not the United States would even go along to support a total debt kind of wipeout. Now, the World Bank and the IMF are on record supporting Abayi's position. Uh, they are heavily influenced by the, the United States government. Um, there was a little bit of of politicking going on at the World Bank, where the the head of the World Bank saying, as part of any debt relief, he wants to promote privatization and regulatory reform and a lot of liberal economic uh, types of reforms that the United States has long wanted. That prompted a very strong backlash among a lot of stakeholders. But I want to bring you back to June 2019. And it was an interview done by U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Tibor Neige. Uh, and he is the top American diplomat. And he said, quote, we went through, just in the last 20 years, this big debt forgiveness for a lot of African countries. Now, all of a sudden, we are going to go through another cycle of that. I certainly would not be sympathetic. I don't think my administration would be sympathetic to that kind of situation. He then went on in both a Reuters story and in an interview with the BBC to explain that he does not want American taxpayer money to bail out African governments who the Americans have been warning about taking on too much Chinese debt. And by, defa by definition, what it would be is that we are the moral hazard there. You borrowed too much. You took on too much debt from China. Now American taxpayers are going to bail you out. So it doesn't look like that the American administration may actually be that keen to that, given the politics today between the United States and China, where any perception that U.S. taxpayer money is actually going to help out either, you know, incompetent policy, you know, debt, uh, economic policymakers in Africa who borrowed too much, this is according to the American kind of thinking, or worse, to the Communist Party of China who lent that money. So that's one issue. In the politics in the United States, it may be very, very tricky to get this kind of thing through. The politics in China may also be very, very tricky to get this kind of thing through, because you know that if Africa says, well, we want our debt written off, Boy, the Venezuelans and their massive amount of Chinese debt, they're going to be lining up. So will the South Americans, so will South Asians. And basically, everybody's going to line up and say, we don't want to pay our debt to China. China's lent out tens of billions of dollars over the past 10 years. That politically could be very tricky for Xi Jinping. 
Talk to us a little bit about the politics of debt relief. Oh, there's so much in there. And yeah, the politics is central <laughs> to all of this. Um, I think starting with the bailout point, an important point to try and grasp in the the debt for dummies is usually when a bailout is given, it's not actually for the country concerned. Most of that money is spent on paying off the um, creditors who have lent them. Yeah, money. so that means I would pay off the Chinese then, right? So in that one limited sense, I um, agree with some of uh, what the um, American government representative is saying, um, but they've obviously put a massive spin on um, how they're presenting it. What you need to remember is that 20% of the debt is owed to China. So when the bailout loans are given, there is another 80% of people being bailed out. And so when the IMF and World Bank give new, these new bailout loans in response to a debt crisis, um, that's money that's going to private lenders, going to other governments as well as China, helping pay the debts themselves to the IMF and World Bank from previous loans. Uh, um, the IMF are meant to have a policy that says if we lend to a country with a high debt, we will only do that if there is a default or restructuring of the debt so that our loans do not pay off previous people. And we support that is what they should be doing. The trouble is it's not what they do. They tend to give loans far too willingly without there being a debt restructuring. And that creates the moral hazard problem that you uh, outlined. If lenders know that the IMF and World Bank are going to make sure that they get paid if the debtor can't pay, then they can lend um, without taking risk into account, without checking what the money is used for. But that applies to the New York banks, the London banks, and the World Bank themselves who've been doing lots of lending just as much as it applies to China. So yes, we don't, um, and, and the logic of following that through is that the problem is not the debt write-offs. Making lenders pay if a um, situation has gone wrong is the right thing to do, and it's those lenders who... The problem is when the IMF and World Bank lend the money to bail out those lenders and keep the debt um, crisis going. And it's that change in policy we need to see from the IMF and World Bank. Now, that is all kind of outside the context of um, the virus. Um, the crisis is so urgent now, we just need um, any measures to keep money within countries. When in nine months' time, we can move on to building the actual systems that are needed to restructure um, debts properly and ensure that the lenders who are actually responsible for lending are the ones that pay. Um, but those actually, the United Nations, there have been votes in recent years to try and create a better debt restructuring system. And it's um, been agreed by most countries, except it's been the United States, Germany, the UK who have blocked it. And so I'd fire that back at the US government that they are the ones that uh, cause this um, cycle of crises to continue and cause lenders to keep being bailed out because they don't, um, they keep blocking the creation of a proper um, debt resolution system. And why do they choose to keep blocking it? 
one thing is to ask them, but um, our understanding is that um, they want the IMF and World Bank to bail out their um, banks and speculators. So much as they might not want them to bail out China, they like it when they bail out the New York banks, um, the hedge funds. And um, so that um, interest prevails. And um, and how, how do you then see China's role in all of this? Obviously, you know, China... China's in the weird position of, of, of already starting to try and restart their economy, you know, kind of as the rest of the world is shutting down. Um, but obviously, they're in a completely different world now financially than they were, you know, at, at the beginning of the year. Um, uh, how do you see China kind of responding to these calls, um, considering that it owns so much bilateral debt in Africa? Yes, I mean, in some ways, I um, would bow to you on understanding a lot more about how China um, might respond from and before the crisis our general understanding is that china does not like to be transparent about what is actually happening with its um, debt and debt negotiations but that often it is willing to delay payments into the future so and this is common to lots of countries they if a government says we're having trouble paying they don't like to write off any of the debt and accept that a mistake has been made but they are willing to delay the problem into the future and i would not be surprised if um in quite soon china announces some kind of um moratorium, suspension, delay for a certain group of countries. I might be wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. Um, the challenge will then come in a year's time how you actually create a um, deal with the underlying problem that there's going to be a lot of debt there that still can't be paid. But that seems fair and reasonable to me. I mean, in one sense, because... Well, they're saying, okay, through the crisis, keep the money, you don't have to pay anything, but you still owe us that money because at the end of the day, too, Chinese creditors or all creditors do have some rights as well, right? I mean, the pension funds, the, the, you know, the taxpayers in China and the taxpayers in the US and Europe who, who pay into a lot of these loans and these whatever it is, all the way the money gets there, they, they have a few rights, don't they? I mean, it's not simply if you just wipe it out. Uh, that you know this invisible force loses people are losing money off of this and africans have to also take responsibility for borrowing maybe they shouldn't have but at the end of the day no one put a gun to their head to take this money from the chinese or else or anybody else so just delaying the payment say for 99 years makes it more manageable but doesn't that seem reasonable i like it that you couch it in terms of uh creditors having a few rights because most of the conversations we have everyone assumes that creditors have all the right to be repaid and that all the responsibility falls on the debtors uh, the reality is when you create a debt contract both sides are responsible and yes the debtor should be um, trying to um, invest that well and the lender um, should be in, um, ensuring that they're lending to people who can um, will be able to repay that the money is being used well and what we've seen for the last 10 years is both sides of that failing in that equation so i'm definitely not going to argue that a government officials uh, have any more rights than the Chinese lenders do. Both have been responsible um, 
for um, creating this problem as of lots of other lenders. The underlying that are um, African citizens who often have had very few rights and very little accountability over the loans. One of the scandals we've seen in recent years, particularly in loans from private lenders, is loans being given secretly or with very little scrutiny. Now, governments are clearly at fault when that happens, but so are the lenders in being able to um, being willing to lend money secretly without parliaments properly checking the loans, without citizens being able to scrutinise um, where the money is going. So I'm not going to be worried for lenders who lose out because they've lent irresponsibly. Yeah, that was in the Republic of Congo. They estimated that the debt is at least a third higher because of hidden debt that is off the books, known as debt bombs that are kind of sitting off there. And those are loans from um, commodity trading companies. They um, lent the money uh, that was not declared. Why should they get the money back? That's not to say that the government officials responsible should benefit. They should be held to account within Republic of Congo, just as people in Mozambique who were responsible for the secret loans there should be. Uh, But the reason why the lenders should get anything back. Would you be happy or satisfied, you being the Jubilee Debt Campaign, if China put an interest payment moratorium or a repayment moratorium, say they exceeded to the 10-year you know, request, but they still, they didn't wipe out the debt. Ethiopia and African countries still owe all that money to China, but they're just saying, okay, for the next 10 years, get back on your feet again. And when you're back on your feet again, you can pay us. Would that be acceptable in your mind? It would be a positive move forward if it was matched by the same action from other lenders. And we need this across the board. And almost the most scandalous thing would be if the um, official creditors, the governments and people like the World Bank did suspend payments and that enabled the private sector still to be paid. Um, But if that was in hands to other um, creditors as well as um, China, that would help with the immediacy of the current situation. Um, If we had as long as 10 years, which is, um, I think, going to be quite difficult to get, but if we had that long, then the key thing would be in those 10 years building the system to be able to resolve debts properly. So having a system where um, the debt situation of a country can be independently assessed and then all creditors have to reduce the debt down to that level. And what we might find then when we come to 10 years when debt payments come due to be made, some countries would need a further debt reduction. Others might not. Another key thing in um, the Prime Minister's statement on what was calling for was that saying that debt payments should never go over 10% of exports. And this actually goes back to an idea that was in a um, debt cancellation scheme for Germany in 1953. So after the Second World War, um, several years into the rebuilding, it was realised that Germany was not able to pay, but also it was... um, if the payments went over a certain level of exports, what the country earns from the rest of the world, it prevents the country from ever um, being able to grow. And so it's actually in creditors' interest to say, we will never take more than this amount out of your export earnings. And that would be a crucial thing and would really um, 
change how the debt system works if such limits were introduced. So it would mean that no country would ever be stuck in a perpetual trap because you would have a limit on um, how much um, could be repaid. And so they would always be able to grow out of a crisis rather than the crisis preventing that growth from ever happening. And so nobody ever re fully getting repaid. Speaking about exports, um, you know, over the last few years, um, one like resource-backed loans has been a, a key way that China lent money to Africa, um, and now with with this global slump in trade, one you know, African countries are being hit very hard. Like the, the, we we see report, we saw reports today that that there's literally not space to put all the oil that's not being sold. You know, there's like physically storing it is becoming a problem in places like Nigeria. Um, but do, do you foresee resource-backed loans kind of making a comeback after this crisis, or are you know kind of are, are some of these models just going to disappear in the wake of the crisis? I hope the models of them that have been used up to now disappear uh, because it looks like all the contracts have put all the risk on the borrower and not on the lender. There is a potential form of um, resource-backed resource loan where it would actually be based not on the um, the price but the quantity and that would have helped insulate say oil exporters because they would now be able to repay China with the oil sitting there and still give the same amount of oil and it would be China that would have taken the loss on the huge fall in the price but unfortunately up till now the contracts have all been written in favour of the creditors rather than the debtor and governments should not be signing those kinds of contracts which mean that they take on the risk um, rather than the lender. Yeah, but isn't it the old saying that he who has the gold makes the rules? I mean, that's. I mean, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but it is in some ways it feels like the guy with the cash gets to tell the guy without the cash, this is what you're going to do. And the problem is that in Africa and many developing countries, they feel that if they don't accept these demands either from the private markets, euro bond interest rates, or from the Chinese in terms of handing over so much of their resources, that they're not going to be able to get the cash. And then there's a political part of it. So a guy, when I was living in Kinshasa, you know, Joseph Kabila wanted to build the roads, be able to tell everybody, look what I did. And he knows he's not going to be there in five years, six years, whatever. So the debt's going to be somebody else's problem. So then we get into a governance problem in Africa. And I, again, I keep coming back to, and I, I don't want to sound like the greedy capitalist here, but when we, you're absolutely right. I fully agree that so much of the weight is on the borrower and not on the creditor, but we oftentimes in this process tend to relieve the borrowers of governance, of corruption, of all of the incompetence that put them in that situation. Uh, you know, I don't, there's no question in there. It's just more of me free thinking about how complex this issue is. What's your thought on that? Clearly, there needs to be um, huge improvements of governance and across the world as well. That's a common problem in lots of countries, including countries like the UK. And I, I am very aware, I speak as somebody in the UK and our role at Jubilee Debt Campaign is to put the pressure on the creditors and to try and change how creditors and lenders behave. But the ultimately the key thing for borrowers is that accountability. It's to have the openness and the scrutiny of what is going on by the media, uh, by parliaments, by civil society organisations. 
conditions so that um, when loans are being contracted, they are a good deal for the um, country and that the money is being spent well. And to go back earlier, you said nobody's holding a gun to a borrower's head. And in some sense, that is true. The alternative is just not to accept the loans. And uh, unless those loans are being able to be used in a really productive way, in which case you should accept them. If they're not, then why would you accept them in the first place? It makes no sense. Um, you mentioned that that some of the African loans have, have actually not paid off in terms of development. Um, I've seen over the, over the last while a, a discourse emerging where where a lot of a lot of these kind of loans are are criticised as essentially uh, frivolous um, and. You know, to the extent there's a, there's a kind of a real kind of moralistic tone that's being struck. I saw a headline today, of like where in relation to this call for for debt forgiveness, which which actually literally put it in terms of the World Bank is asked to to forgive Africa's misdeeds. Um, like, wh- what do you make of this kind of discourse about African lending? To which extent is that is that warranted? Um, I think it would be. Um it certainly um, would be very broad brush to say all lending has not been well used. It would be helpful to, I think, have some more studies out there showing where lending has been well used and to be able to learn the lessons of that. Um, and But then I think maybe in some of what I've been saying discounts the role of the global economy and global economic shocks. However well um, you borrow and invest, when your economies are dependent on a um, small number of commodities and um, you're in a very vulnerable situation, your debt crisis, a, a debt crisis can be suddenly caused um, through no um, particular fault of your own. There's like the commodity price falls, exchange rates can suddenly be hit, and the things that have happened through this coronavirus crisis. Um, entirely because of things elsewhere in the world that have nothing to do with um, what is happening domestically. And so there's no easy answers to that other than, I guess, to reduce a bit of the moralising and to know that that vulnerability exists. But also the kind of fundamental challenge that I um, often feel doesn't get enough attention, certainly on the in the um, Western um, dialogue, is that it, the lying vulnerability comes from that dependence on commodities, on um, fossil fuels and metals. And it's diversifying out of those things into uh, elsewhere that will actually reduce the vulnerability. And that's almost a sense of the missed opportunity of, say, the last 15 years between the last debt cancellation and when global interest rates have been low, there has not been a strategy really to diversify out of those commodities. If anything, um, many countries have become even more dependent on them. And we see now the consequences of that when those prices fall through the floor, as has happened with oil, it means that you're in a very difficult situation. Tim Jones is the Senior Policy and Campaigns Officer at the Jubilee Debt Campaign. Tim, if people want to follow the work that you're doing and what the Jubilee Debt Campaign is doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, so our website is jubileedebt.org.uk, or you can follow us on Twitter 
uh, on at drop the debt, but also um, check out civil society organisations in um, your countries working on um, debt. So across Africa, there's the African Forum and Network on Debt and Development, AfroDad. But in lots of countries, there are um, organisations that are trying to hold uh, governments and lenders to account on debt. And so check them out. Excellent. And also Africa's growing debt crisis, who is the debt owed to? It's a little bit out of date going back to October 2018, but it's still very much relevant for what we're talking about today and gives a broad picture. Hasn't changed that much, I presume. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes so everybody can see the kind of work that the Jubilee Debt Campaign does. Well, thank you very much. We, We wish you the very best and hope that you stay safe in your own lockdown in London. Uh, Make sure you're socially distanced and hands washed and everything else and uh, wish you the very best. Angie, thank you for talking. Kobus, I heard everything that Tim said. I actually agree with everything that Tim said. It would be wonderful, but I'm, I'm struggling. And again, we always get to this point in the show where I'm always struggling. People must think that I got full of anxiety, but I get confused when I listen to our guests because... I sometimes have my way of looking at it, and then I hear what they say, and those come clashing into it. So he said better governance. He said that they shouldn't accept bad terms. He said, you, you know, all the things, well, I don't have to go back through it, but the issue that I have is that, yes, governance is a big problem. I mean, who's going to tell Edgar Lungu what to do in Zambia? Who's going to tell Felix Chesekiri what to do in, in the DR Congo? I mean, they're just not listening to the folks like the Jubilee Debt Campaign or the IMF. And the problem then is the Chinese will come in completely out of the system with deals that are not transparent, which are very short-term in nature in terms of building this road now. And they will then saddle a country with a huge amount of debt. Whether or not it's productive or not is a different story, but that's just the reality of it. And we're in the situation we're in today. So I think it's all well and good, and I, I, again, I have an enormous amount of respect for what Jubilee Debt Campaign does, but this governance question is not going to be solved anytime soon. It's something that you have talked about for years, that Africa, he said 15 years since the last debt crisis, that Africa hasn't evolved its economic model beyond selling raw materials and commodities. You said it goes back all the way to the post-colonial era, 50, 60 years they haven't done it. And we don't see much movement in a mass way that they're going to do that. And then the next problem is that you've got this demographic time bomb that's just kind of sitting on them. And this is what we heard from Henry Chierma up in Ghana, which says, we got to move fast. We got to build these roads. We got to build the infrastructure. We have to get the jobs going. We got to get the the infrastructure in place for, for industrialization. And that requires a lot of cash. So if they don't borrow the money today, maybe under not great terms, they're not going to be able to build that. That's the thinking. Where does that leave us, Kobus? One of the fundamental problems, I think, here, and this is, this is a point that's made in African development circles a lot, is that African governments tend to have very low uh, amount, uh, very small tax bases, and then a, a, very, a relatively small amount of African government revenue comes from, from tax collection. 
Um, that means it means two things. In the first place, it means that that there's a there's a kind of a more distanced and less involved relationship with the citizenry. You know, so the citizens because the citizens don't pay a lot of tax, they don't, they frequently they're not involved. They're they're frequently not involved in the conversation. So the the conversation about the decisions made by by African governments are frequently located in the elite and not communicated to to the rest of the country. And the rest of the country, in a way, can't demand more more, but the Participation because they they don't they're not taxpayers in the way that that Europeans or Americans are. Okay, so before you go much further, if it's not from taxes, how are African governments making money and raising money? Well, in a lot of cases through commodities. Um, so it, it it then they, they tend to they, they tend to you know kind of have to draw to depend on commodities either selling commodities or lending on the back of commodities in order to to then get the this this kind of inf- influx of money um and that means it it it's a, it's a kind of a vicious cycle that just weds them more and more into the commodity sector and makes government officials unable to think of their own countries as being anything else but commodity sources um, you know, kind of rather than than being able to to um, to to find a way of a having a more empowered, more involved citizenry, but then also having a different kind of sources of income that could possibly kind of help them out of this this you know kind of being so stuck in the commodity world. Um, and I think that this is this is a. a, a even without COVID-19, this is a very difficult transition, and but it's a very necessary one, because you know as, you know. Sure, like your country, like South Africa, for example, sells a lot of of gold, right? Traditionally, but it also sells a lot of coal, and Nigeria sells a lot of oil. Um, these, you know, fundamentally, you know, kind of even if you're not talking about about the, the shocks from the COVID crisis, just because of, of of climate mitigation, these countries have to get out of these economies, right? It's not a sustainable thing to be planning on selling tons of coal by 2050, for example. Like, who is going to want it? Like, the, the the impact of it on the world is will be ruinous. It's already ruinous. Um, so, you know, but 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 you find government officials increasingly locked into this commodity cycle because because they haven't set up the systems to get themselves out of it um, and that then becomes becomes a very difficult kind of systemic crisis I think for the whole continent I think we're going into a very very dark period um, I am not optimistic at all I think if there is a debt default or a write-off of the debt it's going to be incredibly difficult for Africa to raise money uh, even in next year year after whenever COVID-19 goes away uh, they will yeah, I mean, I think this is this is going to be very tough. I actually, I kind of like the idea of what the Chinese are, are, may do because the Chinese are not known for massive debt relief. What they did in Ethiopia, in Cameroon, in in Congo is they took away like twenty six million dollars here, fifty million dollars there, tiny little bit. But they, I, I don't, I don't see them wiping out big. It's just not in their nature. But here's the interesting thing, and I'd like to get your take on this, Kobus. Boy, have the Chinese really gained the upper hand in the COVID-19 relief operation. The whole Jack Ma, you know, soft power distribution of masks and all of that, whereas the Americans and the Europeans are so consumed with themselves. I mean, obviously, the United States is in no position to be giving Africa anything in the relief because our own doctors and, and healthcare professionals don't have masks. I mean, they're in a dire situation in places like New York, Detroit, and Los Angeles. So that's not going to happen. But the Chinese have gained diplomatically in the soft power battle the upper hand. 
And I'm wondering if there might be an opportunity here diplomatically for the Chinese to kind of go around the system. Remember, the IMF was a system that has long been controlled by the Americans and the Europeans, and the Chinese felt that they were shunned from it in many ways. Obama really pushed them away, and that's what then prompted them to start their own multilateral financial institutions in the form of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, among others, the New Development Bank, these other things. So do you think there's a possibility that the Chinese will come up and take the lead, separate from the G20, separate from the IMF, and say, here is our debt sustainability project in response to the COVID-19 crisis. We single-handedly are going to be doing X, Y, and Z. And then that sets the agenda for everybody else to follow. And if everybody else doesn't follow what the Chinese are doing, well, then they're, they're, they're holding it behind. It seems like a very easy win for the Chinese to do. Since they're not going to see this money anyway, they might as well get a diplomatic win out of it. I certainly think it's possible. Um, I can see how it would play very well politically within the China-Africa space because, you know, kind of it can then be... Be, be spun in a way of, you know, kind of any kind of resistance to, to that coming from the West is then very easy to, to demonize, you know. I wonder how it's going to play domestically in China. You know, China facing the worst economic situation essentially since the opening up era, um, you know, kind of with, with a, a kind of a pent up of population who spent months at home, um, lots of lots of small businesses in trouble, um, and a kind of a wave of, of pent up nationalism that, that has been created by, um, you know, kind of among others by the, the party itself. Um, how they will react to that kind of that kind of um, payout or, or arrangement? You know, it would have to be a, a, a kind of a very tricky kind of way of balancing the domestic with with the international. But I think simply from seen from an African perspective, politically, it would be a, a big one, and 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 it could potentially. I think COVID could be one tipping point that really really cements. China, like like China as Africa's main external partner, you know, kind of really diminishes the U.S. and Europe. I think in the process. That, that being said, I mean, a lot of Chinese people are taking enormous pride in the the relief programs that are going on in Europe and in Africa. Uh, it is, I mean, I'm, I'm on Chinese social media quite a bit throughout the day, and the pictures of the of the Ethiopian Airlines jets are on Weibo and WeChat. And people are really proud of Chinese doctors going to Italy and Serbia. So I think there is something to that. But let me put another scenario to you just to keep the, the thinking hat on here. Uh, it, you know, FOCAC is supposed to be next year in Dakar. Uh, that probably will not happen. If the Olympics just got canceled, there's probably no way that this will be recovered in time for uh, much. You know, Xi Jinping himself will probably not fly to Africa. That's for sure. Uh, and then all of the organizing that needs to happen six, seven months in advance at the location. So let's let's assume that FOCAC maybe is either postponed, canceled, or goes virtual, right? Instead of a $60 billion big, we're going to give money to Africa, it's a $60 billion we're going to relieve Africa of money. I wonder if FOCAC might be turned on its head this year or next year. And that it's all about debt relief, not about giving money. And in that sense, they can play it domestically to say, we're not giving any more money because we're turning the new money to China domestically, to you, Chinese taxpayers. And we're going to make our African brothers' uh, lives a little bit easier. 
Just a thought. Yes, I, I, that that I can I can kind of see that happening, um, and it, yeah, you know, kind of that would solve a whole bunch of the domestic political problems, um, and it would play very very well in Africa. I think um, it would be fascinating to see how all of this is going to be handled by the U.S. Um, because you know, kind of, if it's a situation of of African countries, poor African countries starting to fall apart. But the U.S., you know, kind of plays the line that uh, that you've been quoting from Tibor Naj and other people, you know, that that this is essentially kind of like, oh, this was Africa was being decadent in its lending, and now, you know, now you made your bed and better lie in it, kind of kind of narrative, you know, kind of in in and at the same time, if China is is more conciliatory in in the process, that would be another another kind of strong nudge, you know, kind of geopolitical nudge of Africa in the Chinese direction. Um, but yeah, I, I can I could definitely see FOCAC being kind of reconfigured in that direction. I mean, who, we would have to see, you know, kind of where we are in a few months. But but yeah, you know, kind of it, it doesn't seem out of out of kind of left field for me. The other part of this is that the United States just passed a $2 trillion package for its own relief. People are saying that that's just the first of many to come. This could go up as high as $5 trillion. Germany passed an $800 billion uh, package for itself. So the numbers are historical. I mean, they're just astronomical in size. And it'll be interesting to see what comes to Africa. So if $100 billion of debt relief or aid comes to Africa, that is sizable by African standards, but in the context of the numbers that people are throwing around for Japan, Europe, and the United States, and even China, they're tiny. So let's keep an eye on the on the context there. I am rather skeptical that the United States is going to play a proactive role in this. I think the United States, given the politics with China, will filter Africa through the U.S.-China political paradigm. I don't think Mike Pompeo has an ability to do otherwise. That's just my my personal take based on what we've seen over the past couple of years. There are people like Peter Navarro, Tibor Nash, uh, Mike Pompeo. These are hawks on China. And a lot of these countries, Kenya, your own country, Ethiopia, have been very closely aligned with China. So it seems very improbable to me that the United States will simply look at Africa separate from China. So China gets sucked into this one way or another. <laughs> Ooh, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. I mean, it is going to be crazy. So yeah, it's it's going to be crazy. <laughs> We're going to have to see. And I mean, you know, in that context, uh, you know, David Malpass, the head of the head of the the World Bank, insisting on on smaller government and and more kind of market driven measures in Africa. You know, kind of on in right now, when in the West you we seeing unprecedented government, you know, kind of interventions in the economy is outrageous. You know, to, to, to even to even mention that at the moment in Africa in the context of Africa is outrageous, I think. Um so so it's gonna you know, it's it's gonna be very interesting to see how, how this plays out. Um, you know, and, and and because because the measures taken in the West are so unprecedented. Um so I think it's really gonna it's probably gonna kind of create a, a a whole new kind of financial landscape after the crisis. Yeah. We are we're in unknown territory here, no doubt. And that's why you know, regular listeners of the show will know that when we get to the end of the podcast, I make a really strong plea for our newsletter that Cobus and I put out every every day. Uh, we're we're take we're talking about these very issues, and I wrote two or three articles this week on the debt alone, 
And what the idea here is we're trying to put provocative ideas out into the universe so that you have something to think about. You may not agree with what we're saying and mostly what I'm saying, but the idea is that I'm trying to give you two or three different ways to see something because it is so difficult, it's so fast-moving, it's so complex, it's so multifaceted that if you just look at it from one vantage point, you're going to miss 20 others. And that's the nature of our conversation today that we had with Tim. That's what we're doing every day in the newsletter. We're filtering out all of the noise, all of the stupid stuff, all of the things that you don't need to know. We don't put a lot of government propaganda in there. Sometimes we put government propaganda in there just to be able to reflect what the governments are saying, but not as credible news. That is getting more and more difficult now as Xinhua, as RTV, as all of the government media are just amped up. And so being a news consumer is really, really hard. So in the China-Africa space, this is what we do. Uh, I spend 14 hours a day doing this. No joke. <laughs> Kobe spends 14 hours a day working on big ideas for Saya. I spend 14 hours a day working on this. And then Kobus is very kind to be able to double check my work and make sure I'm not sounding like a complete buffoon. So Kobus, I do appreciate that. But anyway, uh, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. It's $149 for a year, $75 for students and faculty. Uh, you can get a monthly subscription, get an annual subscription. It's worth it. You're in very, very good company if you're subscribed. Uh, Durko in South Africa, the United Nations, World Bank, IMF, uh, let's see, the White House, the State Department, uh, UNESCO. I mean, 14 African ambassadors in Beijing get this newsletter every single day, and they read it. Uh, Tibor Naj and the State Department and these guys, they're reading it. And so if you want to get a sense of what folks are reading and getting us and, and kind of how they're consuming it, get our newsletter. We would love to have you part of our growing community of readers. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. As always, Kobus and I will be back again next week. Uh, this is now our 10th year of doing the podcast. We're closing in on 500 episodes, Clopas. Can you imagine 500? And when we get to 500, we'll have a some kind of special kind of reflection on it. All 500 episodes, by the way, everybody, are on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another show. For Kobus Venstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thanks for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>